Senator Cortez Masto. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I, I, too, agree. I, I think we have to do an all-of-the-above approach to address fentanyl that's not only coming into all of our communities but our tribal communities uh, and address the needs there. I think it is important. Uh, and I, I want to talk about one of them is the law enforcement piece of it because I see it in my tribal communities. But before I do, I, I have to address um, some of the conversation here from some of my colleagues you know, there is a comprehensive approach. We could work in a bipartisan way to address what's happening at the southern border. It's something I worked on as an attorney general to address the drug trafficking. And what I hear from those on the border is additional funds to help the, that drug trafficking. And that's why the current president, in his supplemental, has actually requested from Congress for $849 million for the procurement of non-intrusive inspection systems to make sure that cars and trucks are being scanned and can counter illicit drug activity, including that fentanyl and human trafficking. The president is also requesting $4.4 billion for Customs and Border Patrol to be able to hire additional agents and officers to make sure that the criminals and traffickers can't get into the country. There's additional funding he has also put in to address the migrant flow, to really focus on this issue. This is part, what I think is all of the above approach, all of the above, because I, I'm here to tell you, somebody who worked to fight these transnational criminal cartels, you can shut down the border, but that's, those drugs are going to find their way another way, ports of entry, other ways in, and, and unless we're doing an above, all of the above approach, we're really not going to make a dent in this. That's why I, sub I support Haida. I support law enforcement. I support our tribal communities helping them really address the gaps that I see in some of the cross-jurisdictional issues that we have. I see in my own tribes. I was just with Fort McDermott Paiute Shoshone tribe, which is on the Nevada-Oregon border. They can't eat, they don't have enough resources to even hire tribal police, right? We know that. Some of our communities don't even have tribal police, so they have to rely on BIA. Well, that one BIA agent has to cover a region the size of Nevada and other territory, and there's only one or two of them, let alone one FBI agent and very few, maybe one AUSA to, to, to prosecute at a federal level. That's ridiculous. That's where we come in as well. I think at a federal level, it is important for us to really focus on how we address the BIA issue, to support and supplement what our tribes already, if they have the ability to, to hire tribal police, but those that don't, we are actually have adequate law enforcement in those communities. And that's where we really have to come together in this committee to, to, to focus on what's necessary. Um, I, I will tell you, there's 28 tribal communities in Nevada, and, and as a former attorney general, I worked with them. One of the things that we did was enter into memorandums of understanding between federal, state, and local law enforcement because of the cross-jurisdictional issues, because of the lack of law enforcement in some of our tribal communities. And I understand, Councilman Kirk, you, you've done something similar with a cross-deputization, right? So how, what, what are the benefits that you see of that cross-deputization? And if you would talk a little bit about that, if that helps address some of the gaps in services until we fix those. Yeah, most definitely. You know, the cross-deputization is with the county, uh, the Montana Highway Patrol, and also the city of Wolf Point. Um, you know, and it works really great, you know, to have more boots on the ground, to be able to combat more, to be able to um, have other people fighting. Because right now, our tribal cops are in the major cities like Poplar and Wolf Point. And on the outer communities, we also have a, a MOU with 
Valley County also. So they're able to cover, Valley County covers our west end and also Roosevelt County covers our east end. So we're able to implement different things, but also implementing like a security program back home to be able to help us alleviate, um, you know, different parts of it. So, yeah. Thank you. And and, and I'm going to ask maybe Chairman Azure, talk a little bit about some of the challenges people don't realize is they think if you have maybe three or four BIA officers, that's going to be enough, but they forget that there's a large territory to cover places like Nevada and in the West. Uh, there's, there's a lot of coverage, uh, travel time between some cities where uh, unfortunately a lot of illicit activity can occur. If you want to hide somewhere, you're able to do it because of the lack of coverage. Do we, do you see that, um, in, in, in your area, uh, in your state and in, in your community and your tribal nation as you're working, uh, with the state and feds as well. I, I'm curious if that is a part of a barrier that we need to deal with as well. In the Turtle Mountains, we are a unique demographic. We are a, a, a smaller land base, but we have a large uh, population. They call it the old 6 by 12 uh -huh. with our land base back home. Uh, but we have over 14,000 people living on or right off that uh, 6 by 12 on our reservation. Uh, sometimes that's, that's where the frustrations with the details come into play. Sometimes we are down to two officers on the weekends. And that's a major misconception with people where they think that the bad guys aren't very smart. Bad guys are smart, and that's why they prey on reservations, because they know the red tape. They know the bureaucracy. They know that if they make a phone call saying that there's an issue on the southeastern side of our reservation while the, drug bust, or the drugs are being transferred onto the northwest side of it, there are... How many people in that 45-minute drive that they are driving by or how many phone calls are coming in? So they know what they're doing. And it's, a, it's another major misconception that this is only happening on tribes. It isn't. It is happening in small-town America. There is a microscope over the top of our tribes because of who we are. And they know the red tape, and they know how to get away with things. And as an attorney general, you know that there was a number that some of the states have where you have to hit $50,000 to prosecute on a drug charge. $4,999 is what people will be caught with. So it's, uh, there are so many issues, and that's why it needs to be a joint partnership of everybody working together and taking down that bureaucracy and taking that red tape down and figuring out a way of how are we going to protect that next generation, not only tribes, but the citizens of this great country. Yeah, thank you. And I know my time is up, but I'm hopeful, uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, really, I, I, th I think when I first got here, we may have had a conversation around this, but it is time for us to have another conversation about uh, how, how we fund BIA along with our, our U.S. attorneys uh, and FBI as they coordinate and our partners uh, with our tribal communities and our local communities as well. I, I just I, I don't think we're doing a, a service here to really address what we are hearing that is happening in our communities right now, and uh, I think it's time for us to, to revisit that conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Senator Cortez-Masto. Senator Smith. Uh Thank you, Mr. Chair, and uh, thank you, Senator Cortez-Masto, for those great questions. And thanks to all of you for being here. I'm so glad to be with you. Um, so, you know, as I was listening to all of this, I'd start by first, we have a, I want to talk mostly about the um, the criminal problems that we have around um, drug trafficking, but I, I also just want to acknowledge that we also have a severe mental health crisis 
um, behavioral health crisis that um, we need to be looking at as well. And um, that's because, to my mind, um, substance use disorder is a is a disease. It's not you know the, the the fact that you have that is a is a health challenge that needs to be addressed. And I want to just note that um, I mean. There are just so far too few resources and tools available to address that and to address it in the context of the generational trauma and um, that we know is driving um, so much of that. Um, you know, there is a very important piece of um, um, legislation that we passed called the Native Behavioral Health Access Improvement Act. Okay, so this, this is legislation that is built on something that we passed, which is the um, the special diabetes program, and modeled on that special diabetes program is this behavioral health program that would um, allow for tribes to be able to use their best knowledge and their um, sovereignty to be able to understand how to put together programs that are going to be able to address those um, um, uh, that mental health challenge. So I want to just draw attention to that because I think it's important. Um, but this crisis is also, as we've been hearing from many of you, the result of this legal quagmire where drug traffickers, ex they exploited, as you're saying, um, as you're saying, uh, Chair Azure, to keep opioids flowing into tribal communities without any accountability. So take the Red Lake Nation in northern Minnesota. Um, Minnesota is a... Um, Public Law 280 state. Red Lake Nation is not under Public Law 280, so it's a closed reservation. And what happens there is that they repeatedly pick up the same drug traffickers who are not native. They then take those folks to the border. Those folks are then picked up by county or federal law enforcement. And a week later, those folks are right back there again doing exactly the same crime. It is a revolving door that there is no end to and no accountability for. So this question of how to address the need for criminal jurisdiction on tribal lands is important and we've you know it's it's gotten a lot more complicated following some of these supreme court decisions that we're that we're dealing with and as we as you have been saying um, those complications have been exploited um, by uh, these um, criminal networks that are trafficking fentanyl and other drugs so i'm going to um, maybe I'm going to ask this question to you, Chair Hilari, because I think that Senator Cantwell was getting this at this a little bit. Um, can you, if you think about what we accomplished with that special criminal jurisdiction for missing and murdered Indigenous people um, on reservations, so that there was that you had that special criminal jurisdiction? Can you speak to how that has been working? What you see as the the strengths of that, and anything that we can learn for what we could do if we were able to extend it to um, drug trafficking, for example. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's, uh, that's a great, great idea. And I uh, just want to add on to, to some of the things that you, you mentioned. The, um, uh, we were reminded by, uh, by some of our elders that this mental health crisis and fentanyl crisis is one and the same. Right. And so um, it, it, it is a holistic, comprehensive approach that is needed to, to address it. And I, I also... Uh, you mentioned two weeks that somebody is uh, taken to the border, handed over to other jurisdiction, and then you see them two weeks later. Well, for us, try two hours later. Yeah, uh, We've went to, uh, we're a sovereign nation, and we have to do what is in the best interest of our people. And so when we, when we go to a, a drug known drug home where there's known drug activity, known drug dealing, and we get them off of the reservation. I do want to mention we also have MOAs with our, our county as well, which allows us to mm -hmm. at least uh, 
uh, enforced, but then we hand them over to uh, the county authorities. And then uh, two hours later, they are hitchhiking back onto the reservation, and it's an ongoing ongoing issue. So I think that that would be an absolutely great idea uh, that, along with our ability to, um, uh, if there's a way we can have special prosecutors that we can prosecute ourselves, because mm-hmm. uh, that's another big barrier is that uh, we uh, uh, can federal prosecute them federally, but you know who's going to take up a case for something that is right. could be seen as a small you know, crime compared to the vast amount of, of crime that, that can happen in this world. Uh, so I, we, we would be fully uh, supportive of something like that. Uh, it would just be a matter of uh, narrowing down the, uh, the details of how that would work with um, VAWA. Yeah, um, I really appreciate that. We are working on legislation to accomplish that, and I think that the 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 feedback that you're giving us, which is you need we need resources to be able to um, do the um, accountability, but we also need jurisdiction. As we and we've learned from VAWA, we've learned from that from the, from the extensions that we did in VAWA how that can work, and I think we should put that learning into action. Thank you, thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Senator Smith, Senator Lujan. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I want to thank everyone for for being here again um, today. Um, One issue, Mr. Chairman, I want to raise before I get to my questions is um, in New Mexico, thousands of tribal members over the last couple of years have fell victim to extensive sober home Medicaid fraud schemes where people were being kidnapped and driven 100 miles away into the state of Arizona under the false promise of treatment, left there without means to return home, left homeless when they were at their most vulnerable state. And while this has been tragic, not just to the families, but to everyone that has paid attention to this, to the entire community, it also highlighted the extreme need in communities to have more treatment. And I very much appreciate the the conversations being had today in in all spaces, especially the line of questioning coming from Senator Cortez Masto and Senator Smith. I certainly agree with with their assessments. Now, Councilman Kirk, it's my understanding that um, there is a presence of a treatment facility on your tribal lands um, to help reduce overdose deaths and overall substance use disorder. Is that facility making a difference? You know, right now we're with the facility, we're waiting on uh, sprinkler systems and also with it being a, a old residential place, we have to do commercial water, commercial sewer. So that continues to back up. Um, there is 12 beds down at the bottom of it. So right now what's going on in Montana is that throughout the region of the Rocky Mountain region, tribes that cover Montana, Idaho and Wyoming, um, there's a regional healing center right now that's that's been going right now that we're starting to start from the ground up and working on it, trying to get a 62 bed facility Uh, right now. I believe it's about $28 million to get it going. Um, But that's for all the tribes. So if, if we're able to, you know, get funding with that and, and also bring the holistic healings and everything that need to happen with that, that would be great. But as for this facility back home, it has not been going for the past five years. So that facility needs help. Yep. And so let me ask the question differently. Councilman, Will more treatment facilities closer to home make a difference? Yes, because we also, all the way in northeastern Montana, have victims 
of being left down in Arizona and we're still continuing to fly them back as of yesterday. We, we got a woman back and paying for her luggage and everything to get back home. So we are also, um, subject to that too. So I appreciate that councilman. Now, Dr. Soto, in your written testimony, you discuss a study you authored on medications for opioid use disorders and Indian health clinics. Were these IHS clinics, urban Indian organizations or tribally run clinics? Dr. Soto, we can't hear you. I'm sorry. <laughs> Can you repeat the question, please? In your written testimony, you discuss a study you authored on medications for opioid use disorders in Indian health clinics. Were these IHS clinics, urban Indian organizations, or tribally run clinics? Yes, they were urban uh, Indian health clinics and tribal, so tribally, tribal health programs and uh, urban Indian health clinics as well throughout the state of California, as California does have over 50 um, Indian health clinics in the state. From your research, how available is culturally competent treatment for American Indians and Alaska Natives in the IHS system, in the UIO system, or in other clinical settings? Yes, um, it's offered, and I really want to advocate for the need for more of culture being integrated into our programs. Um, I can't stress it enough. Uh, I'm a behavioral health scientist working with our tribal communities, and I have just learned in engaging and talking with them that culture really is the foundation of our Native people. It's been there before colonization, and it's still strong and alive today. And it really has what kept our people um, resilient against systemic racism, structural violence, all the things that we are, are talking about. And these are really essential to be able to help our communities recover so it's good for prevention as well as recovering because without this, people in recovery need these cultural ways to heal. There's so much unintended, there's so much there's so much grief and there's so much healing in our community, as I've heard many say today. And so there's a lot of untended grief. Like we need more of that and more of that healing. So having our traditional ways, and that may be very different for many of our different communities, you know, drumming, dancing, song, traditional ceremonies bringing in our community, our elders. And one of the other things that we've learned is it would be great as they're advocating to approve, you know, reimbursements by tribal clinics for the cost of traditional healing services, healers themselves, or these services to help bring them into these um, programs. So they have them, but it's it's takes a lot of resources. It takes a lot of um, time, but to have those would really help support because culture is um, essential. And as many have said, culture is prevention and culture is the way of life. And Dr. Soto, the data that I've seen shows that this works. I mean, I, I think that as it's once, it's something I fully support and I've seen work, um, uh, especially with lessons I've learned from leaders on the Navajo Nation. Um, so I'm hopeful we can find a path forward there. If I may, Mr. Chairman, I, I do have one question that is, technical to Dr. Soto, and it's about purchase referred care coverage for AIAN patients living outside their service area. Does, does that present an obstacle to accessing uh, medication-assisted treatment to Matt? I guess it just depends on who has it, but that purchase referred care um, is is additional funding. It's never enough. Sometimes one person can take that entire cost as they may need that to help support 
their travel or for them to support their rehab, to support the service that they need that may not be offered at that clinic. Because every clinic is obviously very different. Not Some are not specialized in certain services. And so that is really important for us to think about. So I really appreciate that comment because um, more funding needs to go within that as well. Because, yeah, it's not quite reaching all of our communities, our individuals, when support is needed. Thank you for that very much. And Mr. Chairman, I do have other questions. I'll submit them into the record. But just to reiterate from what Senator Smith and Senator Cortez Masto said, associated with resources to the Bureau of Indian Affairs to be more supportive as well in planning and jurisdictional questions, um, I hope that there can be time for us to have a conversation about uh, cross-commissioning and MOUs. In New Mexico, I constantly hear that liability is an issue where there's an unwillingness sometimes to enter into these agreements, and I don't understand that. But if, if that is an impediment then what can be done through the Bureau of Indian Affairs or others to address those issues so that we have more eyes, more ears, more people on the ground to keep us safer? Um, I was always, I always felt safer when there were more patrols through where I lived as opposed to fewer patrols living adjacent to Nambe Pueblo and Puaque Pueblo and uh, in the communities where, 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 where I live and where, where I, I have the honor of visiting. Um, those constraints are, are making it less safe for people as opposed to more safe, not, not supporting that. And then lastly, with the Bureau of Indian Affairs, as more conversations are taking place specific to law enforcement, I certainly hope that we can gather and have a much larger conversation about the Bureau of Indian Affairs being uh, supportive of sovereign nations as opposed to punitive in many areas. I think the times... I have definitely grown and moved and matured from the inception of the Bureau of Indian Affairs as we look to what, what that could become to provide more support to um, our sovereign um, nations and to our brothers and sisters. So thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you all again for being here today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Senator Lujan. And just on the particular um, uh, line of questioning you had around fraud, um, I'd be happy to work with your staff on anything that we can do to to follow up and uh, make sure there's accountability, but also prevent it um, going forward. So thank you for that. Um, my first question is for um, Dr. Seabury, and it's a, I guess it's a bit of a broad one. Um, I'm always cautious to use words that people outside of a hearing room might not understand. And I want to put a fine point on what do we mean by culturally competent care? I mean, I think I know, but I want to describe both as a concept, but also maybe, Dr. Seabury, you can give me an example in the Native Hawaiian community of what that actually looks like. Model for the question, it's actually a favorite opening conversation for me. I usually use the phrase culturally mindful care instead of competent. Competent sounds like you take a class and you get certified and you check off and you have your papers. Um, and when it comes to being relevant and responsive to a Native community, like the Native Hawaiian community, um, the needs are dynamic. So in, in this moment in time, so if we're talking about 2023 culturally mindful or culturally competent care, there's probably sort of two domains of knowledge. So if you're talking about a regular um, health provider, like a primary care physician or a behavioral health provider, then the aspects of what they would need to know to be culturally competent or relevant for working with a Native person might include specifics such as an awareness of what are the contemporary issues facing our community today. So why, um, related to our worldview um, and our emphasis on our connection to land and water, for example, why are we having so many conversations about 
uh, water use and access? Why? What are the current stressors and common issues that face this community right now um, related to housing and water that are unique to their, to, to their history and situation currently socially as Native Hawaiians? So I would say part of cultural competence is knowing about contemporary issues. And then the second piece, which is I think more foundational, is an understanding of how our hist shared history as a people and values show up in the way that we engage in a room. So for example, there's lots of research that shows that um, in primary care situations, health providers interrupt their patients after about 15 seconds of saying what's wrong. Um, when we look at cultural understandings of that, we see Native Hawaiians, um, like many other Native people across the country and then other, other represented groups, um, they, they, come, they wait until they're sicker before they come because they've had more experiences where they're bouncing off of the health system, feeling that they were not seen, that they were criticized or scolded, that assumptions were made about them because of their the group they belong to, that they don't care about their health, for example. And so engagement strategy- Doctor, let me just interrupt because I, I have a very specific question here. So how does that differ from just being kind and nice and respectful? Yeah. I do think it differs, but I, I want you to put a fine point on, because what, what you're describing Absolutely. is someone who interrupts their patient, which should be bad in any context. Can you Absolutely. help me? To, okay. Yeah. Yes. So specifically, so yes, in general, good Western care is great. Here's the thing. It's not just that part. So it has to do specifically with assumptions that are made about the person and what are the um, aspects of their life that are um, helpful. So there are discrimination that we can talk specifically about, about assumptions about, for example, income, where you live, biases about your diet and what you might be doing that affect the quality of the care that they're then providing. So yes, when we're talking about patient engagement, we're not just talking about being warm, receptive, sort of general trauma-informed approach, although that's very helpful. Um, we're talking specifically about recognizing that every instance of engaging with the health system without these modifications of cultural competence and awareness can re-traumatize members of the Native Hawaiian community because of the assumptions that are made about them that then make them not want to seek help in the future. So they don't, they're not able to access it. And when they do, the assumptions that are made about them impact the quality of the care they then receive. That's the issue with respect to competence, in my opinion. And um, the assumptions are, I don't want to repeat a bunch of stereotypes with a microphone on, but the, the assumptions are some series of assumptions that the right, that health, have, right. and, and, that it's yeah, their I'll fault. Yes, yes, that, that these um, behaviors are their fault, that they must come from a violent family, for example, or that they um, are unemployed or don't have secure housing because of a lack of effort, knowledge, education, or wisdom on their part. Um, there are also assumptions that are made, you know, and so, so in many ways, I think that the sort of lack of, a rec lack of recognition of what are the current systemic factors that impact health far beyond whether or not you took the medication I told you to take um, is, is vital when we're talking about Native communities because there's, you know, 90% of health has nothing to do with how you engage with the health system. Um, and so access to safe sidewalks, street lights matter, um, law enforcement in your community, how many fast food joints and, and liquor stores are in your community versus um, libraries and, and, and farmers markets. Those things affect health in ways that then the individual person seeking help bears the responsibility for in the bias of the provider. So their assumption is that they're not eating healthy foods because they don't want to, rather than because they don't have access. 
Thank you so much for that. And uh, just one final request to all of the testifiers, and this is, um, you know, it's not mandatory because some of you may have access to data and some of you not. Um, I do think it's important that this hearing establish a record of the efficacy of culturally uh, mindful care um, because part of what we have to do, this is what we had to do with uh, Native Hawaiian education and health and what we've had to do with immersion uh, schools is that we had to prove that meeting people where they are culturally actually gets you better outcomes, even if you have entirely Western metrics. You're still going to get better you know, test scores, attendance rates, graduation rates, medical outcomes if you meet people where, where they are. And I think there's a tendency in the medical establishment, in the you know, um, executive branch of various uh, federal and state administrations, that this stuff is not backed up by hard science. And I think that's wrong. But it would be great if we could be at least a little bit of a repository of the record that demonstrates this is the most efficacious way for us to deliver care so that we can translate some of that cultural competency into the kind of Western analysis that basically enables us to get more money for the, for the project. So uh, I appreciate all of your work. Um, I appreciate um, the challenges in front of us together in fighting fentanyl, but also just generally uh, in trying to keep our community safe and, and healthy. Um, if there are no more questions for our witnesses, members may also submit a follow-up written questions for the record. The hearing record will be open for two weeks, and I want to thank uh, all of the witnesses, both online and in person, for their time and their testimony. This hearing is adjourned.